I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. My dad said to me, Camilla, if your mum had died of cancer, you'd be quite happily talking about it and trying to help other people going through the same. So what's the difference? So I'll continue talking to people about it because I hope it will help. Hello, my name's Bryony Gordon, and I want to welcome you to this special series of Mad World. And I say special series because it covers a subject I know all too well. Addiction. Addiction, recovery and mental health go hand in hand. And as many of you may know, it's a journey I've been on and I'm still on. So for this year's Addiction Awareness Week, the Mad World team have joined forces with the amazing charities Action on Addiction and the Forward Trust to bring you a series of honest conversations about addiction, be that to alcohol, drugs, gambling or something else. We're slowly breaking down the stigma of discussing mental health, but addiction still sadly remains taboo, even though we will all know someone who's been touched by it, which means I'm especially grateful to my guests on this series for having the courage to speak to me. Sometimes we have a conversation on Mad Wild that I just know will help a lot of people, and this is definitely one of those. My guest today is my colleague and friend, The Telegraph's associate editor, Camilla Tomini, who's graciously agreed to talk to me about the other side of the addiction coin, what it's like living with someone battling it. Her mother was an alcoholic, and when Camilla isn't writing for The Telegraph, she's a patron for NACOA, the National Association of Children of Alcoholics, a charity that provides a space for people, young and old, to discuss the effect parental drinking has had on their life. Welcome to Mad World. Camilla Tomini. Welcome to Mad World. Yeah, I feel that we operate in a bad world yes. and therefore this feels entirely fitting yes. to be here. Quite relaxing. Um, the question I ask everybody first is, how are you really right now? Well, I must say that it's been quite a testing 18 months, both for work and personally. I've currently got two children out of three with COVID at home, which oh, is no. stressy, but they're fine. I mean, the only silver lining to this horrific dark cloud of the pandemic is that children are largely spared from any serious symptoms. But, you know, that combination of temporarily working from home, homeschooling, having a job like we have, constantly being at the beck and call of the news desk, trying to manage three children aged 13, 11 and 8 has at times been a little bit testing and I've just come back from the Tory party conference and sort of sometimes <laughs> it's terrible I see some have have this feeling I haven't fortuitously got COVID and don't get me wrong I don't want COVID but I wouldn't mind an opportunity to just take a step back briefly and lie down for 10 days well sometimes <laughs> sometimes I fantasize about like a very minor hospitalization maybe a broken arm um or <laughs> something like that so I can just sit and be quiet and read but of course 
that's not going to happen. And also, I don't wish ill on myself or anyone else. But I mean, there is sometimes this notion of stop the world, I want to get off. And people often say, I don't know how you do it, you know, your job and the kids. And I just sort of think, yeah, Christ, I don't really know. Well, I was going to say, because you are, I think, one of my most prolific colleagues. And I do sometimes look at the newspaper, turn on the television, turn on the radio and think, how does she do it? And you are incredibly talented. You are incredibly prolific. You are the associate editor of The Telegraph. We are meeting today to talk about something kind of completely different. Yes. Which is your role as patron of NACOA, which is the National Association of Children of Alcoholics. For children of alcoholics, exactly. And you've been very open about this. Your mother was an alcoholic. Yes. And I'm so grateful for you coming to talk about this with us today because this is a subject that many families never, ever, ever manage to find the words to talk about. Well, we, we didn't find the words to talk about it when it was happening. And funnily enough, your first question about my kind of working life and output is directly related to mum in the sense that I mean a very close friend said this to me fairly recently as I was sort of agonizing over madly whether I was doing enough and he was like the thing about you Camilla is you seem to have spent a lot of your adult life sort of fiercely trying to avoid turning into your mother Mm -hmm. and um, I mean no disrespect to mum at all um, by that she passed away in 2001 aged 54 and um you know, as with the Philip Larkin poem, we've all got issues with our parents. And what we try and do is take the best of what they gave us, but also try and reject the worst and not make history repeat itself. So my mother, Lynn, was this amazingly gregarious, kind of like funny, charismatic, attractive woman that was the life and soul on one hand. And yet behind closed doors, somebody who you know, had this chronic drink problem and I think you know, wasted a lot of her potential. And so I suppose when I try and emulate her kind of um, joie de vivre, I also think, God, I, I, there's this sense that you're only one step away from it all, like throwing it all away. And this ridiculous workaholism, which I do acknowledge, is almost a symptom of how easy it is to lose everything. And having witnessed that in my own life, they say that you know, every journalist is only, um, they're only as good as their last story. So I have got this mentality of, my God, you know, I've got to just keep on going and keep standards up, can't let standards slip. Because I suppose that's the whole of my childhood. The whole of my childhood was kind of like papering over cracks and telling the outside world, you know, everything's okay, you know, keep carrying on, keep calm and carry on. It's funny, I ended up, you know, covering the royals because that's like the the, the slogan on tea towels. Um <laughs> And when you grow up in that environment, especially as my dad was the local GP in the town where we lived, there was a reputation to uphold. And it would have done, I think, really huge reputational damage to him for us to have admitted that there was a problem behind closed doors with mum. And we were sort of, you know, the archetypal, respectable, middle class family. And so this was all going on. And it took us a long time to acknowledge it between ourselves, between me, my two older brothers and my dad. And it only really came to a head where we actually came out and started discussing her alcoholism well into it when we went on holiday to South Africa and we were staying in this amazing hotel in Plettenberg Bay. And my mum just like didn't emerge from her hotel room. And it was just so, the whole thing was amazing that we were away, but just utterly heartbreaking that she wasn't participating. How old were you, Camilla? 
So this would have been in the early 90s. So I'd say that she had a drink problem from about when I was about seven. And then that got worse as I got to sort of double digits. And then that holiday was the last family holiday we had before my parents split up. And I think they split up in the early 90s. My dad remarried into 1993 to my stepmother, who I love. Um, but we, we, we all sat downstairs in this like lobby of the hotel and started playing a game. I can't remember what it was. And I just turned around to my dad in front of my brothers and said, mum's an alcoholic, isn't she, dad? Like, this is not what's going on here. And then my brothers kind of chipped in. And it was the first time that we had addressed this elephant in the room, which I know people listening will find really strange. I mean, I had had periods where I was going around finding bottles and also like measuring the bottles in the mm. fridge. And my dad caught me doing that. I said, oh, what are you doing, Camilla? And I said, oh, um, I've got, <laughs> I've got a science experiment for school and it's on alcohol consumption. And he sort of looked at me. And then after that holiday, we tried to put her into therapy and she went up to this place um, up the M1 and she kind of like came out thinking she could still drink spritzes. And like, I really thought she was going to come out of it changed. And I remember in my own little childhood mind, we were driving back down the M1 to see her. And I sort of did this thing like if we, I don't know what I did, I sort of timed when we got to the services. And if we get to the services in the next 10 minutes, then that means mum's going to be okay. It was mm-hmm. just you sort of like holding on to this hope that somehow she's going to be changed. And it, looking back, you know, it's so naive we weren't really offered any help or support as a family. And also, you only realise when you're a lot older that if someone in the grip of addiction, as a child, you don't quite... You take it a bit personally in the sense of why is she prioritising gin over the rest of us? Why is she doing this? And then when you get older, you realise, well, because she was trapped in it. And when I sort of... like One of the final times I saw her... Um, and she was kind of in bed, um, you know, at lunchtime. And I went round to the house and she was sober, but she was like a little sparrow, like a little curled up in a ball in her bed. And I looked at her and I said, come on, mum, you know, I sort of washed her sheets, gave her a bath. And she was sort of so frightened of sobriety by that point that I kind of left there thinking, well, if that was me, I would be drinking because... Mm-hmm. She had lost everything. She had lost her husband. She had lost her looks. She had lost most of her friends. You know, I was hanging on by a thread. My brothers had, you know, had enough and weren't really speaking to her. So at that point, she was in such the depths of addiction to such an extent that I just thought, God, you know, I would be getting up and having gin in the morning because what's left here? Mm. And that's so sad. And that doesn't mean I gave up on her. But there's only so much you can do. And subsequently, my dad told me that when they were fairly newly married and he could see that this was an issue, he sent her to a psychiatrist for, I think, 18 months. And the psychiatrist came back and said, look, I I can't do anything with her because she doesn't accept this is a problem. And she never accepted that she was an alcoholic. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, but it is, it, but it's incredible. But it also makes perfect sense to me in a way because alcoholism is such an illness of denial, and it's the only illness that tells it you don't have it. Yes. Can I go back to your sort of early sure. childhood? And you mentioned that you could tell from about the age of seven her drinking was a problem. What's your first awareness that mum was perhaps not like the other mums? Well, it was this sense that um, we, me and my brothers, used to call it mum's in a mood. And her mood would change. And she used to wear glasses and she had this very precise way of putting her glasses back onto her nose in an exaggerated fashion because she was drunk. And 
behind her back, my brothers would do the do the same manoeuvre to basically say, oh, God, she's on one. And um, then I started going to school and wondering whether other people's households were quite as chaotic. I mean, we got to the point, you know, when I was sort of at the end of primary school where I was doing a lot of the washing, keeping things afloat at home, would get situations where the boys would say, Mill, as they nickname me, we haven't got any uniform. And I'd be like, oh, God, look in the washing basket. Oh, there it is. It's like there from Friday. Right, put that in the wash, deal with that. And that's, I mean, maybe it sounds sexist, but I knew how to use the washing machine and they were lads, you know. So I used to do that. And then I remember saying to my friends at school, like, how, how much do you help out at home? They're like, oh, we don't really do anything. We're only, <laughs> we're only eight. Mm. I was like, oh, right, OK, yeah, that's interesting. And then there was, you know, I was conscious of her unreliability. So as I then got into secondary school and you start doing things like playing sport, you know, she wouldn't come and watch. I mean, she wasn't up in the morning. We had a period where my dad worked abroad where she was meant to do the school run in the morning and she actually hired a taxi firm to take us in. I mean, in retrospect, again, now I'm a mum. That's just so weird. Did you normalise a lot of it, though, yeah, of course. at the time? You only, you only deal with the experience that you have. And equally, you are hanging on for dear life to the times when she's sober. Like, I vividly... One of my happiest memories of her is when I usually used to go home on the coach and she came onto the coach because my parents had been out in town and they had managed to get home in time to take me back by car. And I remember vividly, she was in this royal blue long coat. She had all of her hair done. I mean, she was a really, really attractive woman. And she swept onto the coach and all of my friends were like, <gasps> and I was like, yeah, that's my mum. And she was so glamorous. Um, you know, you're holding onto that for dear life. But yet with this glamour came this like huge dysfunctionality. Like I remember another Christmas where <laughs> it's embarrassing for me to admit it now. Like she turned up at church just in a fur coat, like naked underneath it, like it was funny. Like it was, I just thought, oh my God. I mean, and Christmas was hard because Christmas is like this idea that you can just legitimise heavy drinking because it's Christmas. So, And it's also a really important family time. Yeah, but I used to go into Christmas with a degree of trepidation, really. And, you know, bless him, my dad is there, like so trying, like the proverbial swan to keep things going and back in those days 80s and 90s you know he was putting in 50 60 hour weeks as he ran his own GP practice he's going out on call but then there is this degree to which she is you know this very sophisticated woman on the surface and of course I have very happy memories of the times when she you know executed the children's parties and she was hugely supportive to me as her only daughter and she was very much like you need to do well at school you have to have your own income it was only when I had my own children and she obviously missed out on all that. Sadly, she missed out on me even becoming a journalist. And I, my first paper was a Sunday Express. And back in the day, she used to be an Express reader. And I'd have loved to have told her that. But hey ho. And, um, you know, she, 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 she was a hugely highly intelligent woman who I think would have been much better off working. I think she got into this situation where she had three children under four in very swift succession, and she just couldn't cope. And I kind of did a voyage of discovery back to speaking to some of the people that used to help look after us, like she always needed help. Again, I'm not criticising her for that, but there was always someone who had to come in and help. And one of those ladies who's now deceased, this lovely lady called Mary, said that my grandmother, as in my mum's mother, had turned up at Mary's house and said, you need to help with these children, Lynn can't cope. And then you kind of think, well... 
grandma, why weren't you helping her? And then there's a history of mental health problems in that side of the family. You know, actually the same grandmother had had a nervous breakdown, I found out subsequently in her early 20s. She ended up being treated with electric shock therapy as an older woman. So clearly there was some, you know, my mum had mental health problems, but it wasn't discussed like that. It was discussed as in, right, she needs to dry out. Well, what's the fundamental cause of all this? Yeah. And also, presumably, alcohol was the only thing to numb the pain. Yeah. I mean, she must have been desperately unhappy. What makes me unhappy as her daughter is that I could never get into that. You know, how old was I? So 2001, I was born in 78. So what, I was 22, 23 when she died. Had I have maybe gone on to, I got married a couple of years later. I then had children. Having children was an eye-opener, obviously, for me. Had I known then what I know now, you know, I'd love to go back in time and sort of like tap her on the shoulder at that 11 o'clock when the kids are in school and she's opening a bottle of Gordon's and sort of tap her on the shoulder and say, look, are you all right? What's gone on here? Mm. But I don't know if anyone ever did that. And my dad, like, is trying to hold it all together. He was a very supportive husband of her because she wasn't the best behaved wife on earth. Um You know, you want to go back in time, but you can't. You mentioned earlier how now you can sort of rationalise why she couldn't put you, her children, before the gin. The gin, the alcohol came first. But as a child, how does that affect you? Because it's probably something you're sort of, it's in the back of your mind, but that's an element of denial as well. I don't know, because it's something I hear a lot from adult children of alcoholics, that thing of why couldn't you stop? And it's something as an an alcoholic myself with a child that there was a huge amount of guilt there because I just assumed that having kids was going to cure me of this yes affliction and I was like oh guess what it doesn't no maybe it actually makes it worse worse. I was thinking this this morning on the way here knowing that we were doing this podcast and I kind of thought you know did I feel rejected by her I don't think so I felt really it's really weird I felt very supported by her as a woman and she was always very complimentary towards me when sober, you know, telling me that I was really, you know, you're really bright, you can go on to great things, really buoying me up, you know, she was always very supportive. But yet there was a degree, if you really lay it bare, of, of, sort of physical and mental abuse. When I was older and my parents got divorced, I felt that I should go and live with her. My dad was obviously very against the idea, so my brothers went with my dad because they were old enough and wise enough to realise that them being with her wasn't a good idea. So you... you I went with her by myself. So you, at the age of what? 13. 13. Yeah. You are essentially separated from your brothers yeah. and your father and yeah. you go and live alone yeah. with your alcoholic mother. Yeah. I mean, that's really tough, Camilla. I know, it was awful. I mean, I, I tried to be supportive um, and... There were a great many incidents, really close shaves. I mean, she was drink driving. I was, in one respect, I'm grateful for that time because I really just used my academic work as an escape. But equally, I socially, I'd probably live with her for, maybe I was 14. You know, by about 15, 16, I'm going out to the pub. She's like barely compass so I'm like nicking money from her wallet, going out, getting quite drunk myself. Coming back, thankfully, I went to a really good school, a good private girls' school. Again, they didn't know anything about this. My friends didn't know anything about this. And because it had been drilled into me, you have to do well. You know, failure is not an option. 
I was of that mentality. I was like, oh, my God, I'm just going to have to get into my work here. But, I mean, things came to a head in the middle of my... I did my GCSEs and then things came to a head in the middle of my A-levels where, I mean, there was one incident where I just don't know why she did it, but she sort of... I was just working in my study and she just came in and just clouted me over the head. And I actually just turned round and slapped her because I was just so outraged. I'd done nothing wrong at all. And I actually then said to my dad... I'm going to have to leave because if I retaliate, which I was tempted to do, I'm going to really hurt her. I mean, she was quite vulnerable physically, obviously mentally and emotionally. And I also thought, I've got to get good A-levels. I've got to get on with this. So we had this extraordinary thing where I basically turned up at my dad's house, caught the bus and sort of said, I, I didn't really admit that I needed to leave there, but I sort of, my stepmother, bless her, sort of said, are you all right? And I said, no, not really. I've got to come here. And she was just like, thank God. And my dad was like, thank God. Because apparently, I, I didn't know this, but he, my dad had been awake at night for the previous year or two, basically crying, like mm. thinking, why the hell isn't she with us? And Bernice, my stepmother, had quite wisely said, you've got to let her come to this conclusion herself. She's doing what she thinks is best by her mother. She's her only daughter. I mean, you, you, you essentially were at the age of like 13 taking on the carer role. Yeah, yeah. Which is quite a common thing for children. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, that yeah, that's that was that was what I felt I had to do. Who else was going to look after her? Mm. There wasn't anywhere else, and I didn't blame my dad for this. My dad had been sort of propping this whole situation up for fifteen, twenty years. I didn't blame my brothers. I hated being apart from my brothers. I cried a lot at night, cried and cried and cried. I just wanted to be with my brothers. I found my first year of university really hard because I did my A levels managed to do well I had just got back with my dad and my brothers and then I was leaving and going to Leeds and I was so homesick I hated it all I wanted was to be with my dad and my brothers because that's the only security I really knew and craved equally mum at this point was like completely out of control sort of phoning me in the middle of the night I was then drinking quite heavily you know this was the other thing that happens you sort of think I need an escape and a release from this and therefore you go and then drink. So I had this chaotic, <laughs> my 20s were just pretty mad. Do you think, you know, you referenced that your mother's side of the family has mental health issues and so often we hear in recovery about how alcoholism is a family illness and do you think that that's something that, I mean, you got sober when you got ch- yeah. had children? Yeah, so basically I, you know, was a terrible drunk, should never have drunk really and you, what's the phrase, one is both too many and never enough. Yeah. No off switch. One is too many, a thousand is never enough. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but also just literally, I mean, getting into some real scrapes, coming home in ambulances and stuff, right? Yeah. Um, yes, I know. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm so, with you. It's so, lucky that our paths didn't cross. I Miller. know. <laughs> um, but the thing is about it is I don't mind kind of admitting that now because I'm out of it. Like, I think if I hadn't have broken the cycle, I mean, I would just look like a total idiot. And I got to, I had my eldest child when I was 30. I drank a little bit after she was born. And then I just thought, one day I just woke up and I thought she was kind of becoming a toddler and cognizant of what I was doing. And I thought, there's no way I ever want these kids ever seeing me drunk. So I just stopped one day. I, don't, I can't even tell you what day it was. I don't count the days. 
I mean, I, I, my only regret about it is that I didn't stop drinking far, far earlier. What was I doing? Like, thank God, like social media didn't exist when I was starting out in journalism, mm. like getting so drunk with people. I mean, getting stories and forging contacts, admittedly. But if anyone had filmed me in some of the conditions I got myself in, it would have been professionally suicidal. You can't, obviously this is a podcast, so what you can't see is that Camilla has her hands on the side of her face in a sort of like horror and disbelief. Yeah. But I think also there are certain professions where drinking is very much normalised yeah. and journalism is definitely one of them, Yeah, you know. And, and I wonder whether it's, you know, it's not an accident that that's, you know, we go into professions that normalise the dysfunction we, we sort of had as children, so yes. to speak. But also I think I spent my 20s kind of trying to come to terms with her death because, as I said, she died when I was in my early 20s and for quite a long period of that time... I sort of went through this thing of this isn't fair. Why has this happened to me? Why can't I drink and be okay? I don't know, really just raging against the machine, sort of Dylan Thomas style. And then I realised that actually the best way to get over it all was to stop the cycle. I mean, I thought to myself, God, this would be utterly tragic if history repeated itself and I carried on like this and I had some close shaves um, it's really weird that I had known my husband for a long, long time before we got together and got married because he went to school with my older brothers. So he was like a childhood friend. And it was really important to me, actually, when we did get together. Weirdly, we got together a week before my mother died. Um, and I, my last conversation with my mother in Hemel Hempstead Hospital, where she was barely compass mentis, because by that point she was so ravaged by alcoholism, what happens is your liver can't process the toxins, and so it it goes straight to your brain, and you get something called encopolopathy, which basically means you go quite mad. And along with that, you have this internal bleeding that's just horrific. So she had had a couple of episodes of major bleeds. She was told to not drink again. She couldn't. So she ended up in hospital. And I had this weirdly lucid conversation with her saying, I've reconnected with Dominic and um, you'll remember him, Mum. And he, she perked up and said, oh, he was a lovely boy. And I said, yeah, I'm going for a date with him and I'll tell you about it next time I see you. She was like, oh, lovely. And then that was the last thing I ever said to her. And... Because Dom knew her, both in good times and bad, it was really weird. She died and then this new relationship started and I was relieved when she died because she had always been the kind of woman who said, if I'm ever a vegetable, put me out of my misery. And we were looking for adult care for her and I just thought, this, this is awful. I don't want her in adult care. I, I, I wanted her to be put out of her misery, which sounds awful. So, And I felt guilty about that as well. But when she died, like a new part of my life kind of opened up because I met the love of my life again. And we obviously got married and had children. But even that, you know, I nearly sabotaged that relationship with just ridiculously bad drinking behaviour. And he was very understanding and indeed forgiving. But I don't think he would have continued to forgive me if I hadn't have stopped drinking. And that is undoubtedly the best decision I ever made. And it's weird because as a journalist, you think, if I stop drinking, I'm not going to get stories anymore at lunches. And weirdly, I, I mean, from my 30s to my 40s, I've been like 100% more productive and <laughs> successful than I was in the previous 10 years. And that's about the longevity of one's career. But it's also about... Um, recalibrating mm. and also coming to terms with it you know I've come to terms with mum's life and death um, maybe you don't think I have I don't know if people do think I have but I think I have because I'm able to talk about it like this but also it doesn't matter what I think 
No, it doesn't matter what anyone and, thinks. Because you're the only one that's been through it. Do you know yes. what I mean? And actually, it's a remarkably generous thing to do to come and talk about this. And sometimes the talking about it is the processing. Can I ask you, just because there'll be lots of people listening to this who have experience of alcoholism, who are either children of alcoholics or alcoholics themselves, but there might be lots of people listening who don't know anything about it. And, you know, you pinpointed there, your mum is in hospital, her liver is failing, she is essentially going mad because the toxins are poisoning her brain, and yet she still can't stop drinking. Mm. And that, I mean, that to me sums up the utter heartbreaking futility of this yes of this disease i mean it really is up to the person you can't ever stop someone from doing what they want to do Um, and that's not to give up but i mean i've had subsequent conversations with so many different people who have obviously asked for my help with their own alcoholic loved ones and i've said there is only so much you can do before it is utterly self-defeating and the other thing is you go through this whole period of your mood being dictated by somebody else's you know I'm putting my key in the door what am I going to be confronted with today come home from school either she's going to be on good form and everything's going to be all right or she's going to be on bad form and the whole evening is going to be an absolute nightmare Um, and therefore that then creates a person who I don't know like I've discussed this with a lot of children of alcoholics um this idea of there's a degree of fatalism perhaps or I mean I think I think I hope I'm a hugely empathetic person but when you've dealt with that on a day-to-day basis sometimes people's (laughs) concerns by comparison seem rather piffling I remember going to university and people were banging on about a load of nonsense and I just thought god you don't know you're born Um, and you don't want to be desensitized to people's problems but I mean it, it does sort of make you pretty resilient And accepting that life can throw these extraordinary things your way that you have very little control over. Mm. In some respects, I am, as a result, a control freak. Mm. I'm a control freak domestically. The way that I had to kind of manage the household is translated into my, you know, my house is immaculate and everything is in order. I'm sort of a hyper organiser. As far as the children are concerned, I never want them to think that I wasn't there at the key moments, assemblies, sports performances, football matches. I mean, I'm not the soccer mum because I'm a working mum, right? I'm the mum who goes to other mums and says, oh my God, do they need a fancy dress on Friday? You know, I'm not the class rep because I have got too much to do at work. But I am somebody who I think my children would think was very reliable and ever-present, even with work. That is a lot to put on myself, but I wouldn't want it any other way. And that is a degree of control, because I was out of control. I had no control over this woman. So if you don't mind, I will be in full control of my own life now in adulthood. I think my mum, I don't know, like, to be fair, she did come to some drama performances and stuff. But not being there in the morning, it's, it's so awful. Mm. We'd go in, we'd go downstairs, we'd take it in turns, me and the boys, to take her up a pint of either Ribena or orange squash. I didn't realise until later that was because she was so dehydrated. So it's like this idea like of cereal, somebody serving you cereal in the morning, just completely alien. Like that never happened. That's not the worst thing that can happen in childhood. 
she was around in the evening. And also, I, I feel terrible about saying all this because for a large proportion of the time, she was a great mum. This is the other thing. I would not have changed this woman for the world. Mm. This woman made me the woman that I am today. And a great many of the skills that she passed on to me, I have passed to my children for the better. I loved her so much. No one could hug me like my mum, and that's the truth. And so there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think of her in hugely fond terms. But at the end of the day, she was flawed. And I know people are flawed. And I feel desperately sorry for her that she couldn't achieve her potential. That's what depresses me. It gets down to a kind of like woman-to-woman thing that my mother was so desperately unhappy that she turned to alcohol to such a great extent. I mean, of course, as a, and you don't even think, oh, why as children didn't we make her happy? You reflect on it and you think, it's so sad that she was so unhappy that she resorted to that. Mm. That's, that's upsetting. And, you know, we can't, I can't do anything about it now. I just hope that the life that we had and in her sober times, that she was happy to have had the three of us and to enjoy some aspects of it. What would you say to anyone listening now who is dealing with an alcoholic loved one and they can't stop them from drinking? Because as you say, and and I think that's a really crucial thing and it's a a question that I get asked quite a lot, is how do I stop someone drinking? And the answer is you can't. Yes. So I think you have to be supportive but not think that you're ever going to provide the solution to this problem because the person who is the addict can only provide the solution. First of all, if you're the child of an alcoholic, go to the NACOA website. I wish it had existed when I was younger because I would have then realised that I wasn't by myself and that there were other kids going through this. I thank my lucky stars from what I've now learned from being involved with NACOA that I just had one alcoholic parent and not two because Mm -hmm. a lot of the kids that they help, and by the way, they don't just help children of alcoholics who are children still, but also the adult children of alcoholics, if that makes sense. You have two parents who are in the grip of addiction. I mean, that is just beyond comprehension. Mm. Um, and quite uh, common, presumably. Quite common, quite common. And I d- first got to know them because I did the story for the Sunday Express that counsellors were spending quite a lot of time reading bedtime stories over the phone to five-year-olds because they weren't being tucked in at night. You're sort of being left to their own devices. It's so sad. I know you're, you're welling up. It is bloody sad. You know, well, no, cou- because I, you know, I mean, this is the flip side, Camilla, is that I was that mum who just yes. put her child to bed. Every single one of these podcasts about addiction, I've like... I know, up. but Bryony, the point is, sweetheart, that you have done the almost impossible because I have no greater respect for someone than someone who has dealt with addiction and got over it. I know how hard that is. If I ever meet anyone in recovery... I am in total awe of it because particularly alcoholism, it's una- alcohol is just unavoidable. It's woven into the fabric of public life. And also, by the way, parental alcoholism isn't about, you know, a parent sort of drinking from a paper bag. As I've said before, my mother was hiding bottles of gin in Chanel handbags. There was no, you know, you'd look at... There's no, it, it, it's not a class thing. It doesn't look one way. doesn't look no. one way and you can be children who might already be familiar to social services or you can be kids like us that absolutely aren't on social services radar and it has the same effect on both of them. Okay, maybe there's a degree to which poverty exacerbates the situation. We found escape in school. It's like brilliant, go to school, get away from this. So I would say to children suffering from it right now that they must go on the NACOA website.
You were talking about how, sorry, sorry, before yes. I interrupted you, uh, that you you got involved when you were doing the story for the Sunday Express. So I did Express. that story yeah. and then I kind of, you know, I'd, I saw Liam Byrne, the Labour MP, and he said that his father had been an alcoholic and then I got together with him and I got together with Jonathan Ashworth, the Shadow Health Secretary, whose father was also an alcoholic. Then Caroline Flint was involved because her mother was an alcoholic and the next thing I knew, I suddenly was in this community of people and we all understood exactly what, we had all gone through. Geraldine James, she's involved. Sherry Lungi. I was just suddenly in this community of people who absolutely understood me and I understood them without even really saying much. Callum Best. All these people, I was like, right, I need to just be along in this because A, it made me feel better and B, I genuinely thought, God, I, want, I need to help other people. And we campaigned successfully for £6 million funding for the children of alcoholics, but now the government has reneged on that promise. So we're going back to square one and asking for more money. And, you know, often drug addiction gets the priority, but particularly in lockdown, the number of children that this has affected. I mean, I was despairing in lockdown because I thought, God almighty, the salvation offered by school has gone. And you've got kids at home stuck with their parents who parent, parents, plural, who are drinking um, and not all of those children would be classed as vulnerable because if they were like me and the boys, so, you know, oh, they'll be fine. They can be homeschooled. I mean, God forbid. So we're doing everything we can to just raise more money and try and say to the government, this is a problem. And, and it's not, by the way, always the mum that sort of starts drinking at noon. This is also about binge drinking parents who sort of go to the pub after the pickup on a Friday night and mm. the next thing you know they're still there at nine or ten mm. and their children who have been playing in the pub garden are tugging on their coattails saying can we go home can we go home and they can't you know it's all very well turning a blind eye to that because but that isn't responsible parental behavior but you see it and it's everywhere it really is everywhere yeah. I mean you just you mentioned that the amount of people that came forward and, and you've worked with and you go from feeling completely alone the other thing Camilla that I think is so powerful about the way you speak is that you have no resentment towards your mother no you have a huge amount of love yeah. towards her and so it isn't to vilify no alcoholics. and I hate that you know and I'm not making judgments I sound like I'm being judgy on the parent in the pub who no you're not <laughs> but what I'm saying is we we can't pretend that it it isn't a problem that someone's in a pub with children late at night drunk. You know, let's just get, let's get back to the square one of this. People who are absolutely off their faces in front of their children are being neglectful of their children. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be judgy, but that's the fact of this matter. And it's kind of been lost in this whole kind of like hurrah for gin, wine o'clock ism of mm. motherhood. Mm. Oh, right. Yeah, let's self-medicate on gin. Yeah, go, go, moderately drink, of course, if you want to. I don't drink, but I go out with my mates who I love and they can have a drink or two. My husband still drinks. I don't have any problem with anyone drinking. Just don't make me drink and don't make me feel bad for not drinking is my condition. Condition, But let's not pretend that it's great to be four parts pissed in front of your kids. It Do you really think isn't. we have a problem in this country in how much we kind of normalise yeah, our culture? Also, like, why is why is drinking the norm? I don't get it. What? Why is it like? All oh, right, well, yeah, it's your birthday. Have a drink. Someone's died. Have a drink. There's a christening. Have a drink. Why aren't you having a drink? Drink. Drink. Why aren't people saying, well, no, it's probably normal not to drink, and then maybe have the occasional drink. Why is it like woven into the fabric of everything we ever do? Why am I seen as the outside when I don't drink? You know, I've been to weddings. <gasps> what? 
normally with some like brusque middle-aged man come on have a champagne I go actually my mother drank herself to death so if you don't mind I might abstain then they then then they're quiet it's like I don't know why I'm having to justify my bloody behavior it's true it's having said that the same middle-aged man will often say later on in the evening so this non-drinking, then, I, I, I'm a bit concerned about my drinking. It's always the people, listen, it's always the people that need to stop drinking who question you're stopping drinking the most. Uh, it's because you're holding a mirror yeah. up to them. But then I'm quite happy to say, you know, when I did the initial piece about my mum, when I first started at this paper, I didn't realise it would get half as much of the bloody feedback that it got. I was inundated with people saying either that they had got parents who drank and people quite high profile, actually, who you'd never know and haven't wanted to say that in public, which I totally respect. But equally, a lot of people saying that they had felt that they were problem drinkers and this is the other thing you don't need to be an alcoholic if drinking is causing you problems then you've (laughs) you've got a drink problem I mean drinking was causing me considerable problems Mm. personally and professionally and therefore I had to knock it on the head but back to the original point about how to help people the other thing is I think that you will end up being consumed by somebody else's alcoholism if you think that what goes back to that kind of my mood's going to be dictated by your mood. No, it's okay, actually, for you to have a good day and to continue having a good day while everyone about you is losing their heads. It's so important for a child, you know, a child who has gone to school and got a merit or won the cross-country race and then comes home and somebody's drunk and nothing's appreciated. It doesn't mean that they haven't still got a merit and won the cross-country race. And also this guilt and responsibility. It's not a child's fault ever that their parent is an alcoholic, ever. Okay. In some cases, it's not really even the alcoholic's fault. Mm. And we have to have some sympathy for that. And, you know, so many children sort of think that they are some way to blame And I'm telling you now directly, if you're listening to this, you are not to blame. It isn't your fault. It will never be your fault. And I think that's a really important lesson. But I think discussing these issues, it's hard because whenever I've talked about mum, I've talked about her being an alcoholic and she was so much more than that. So I feel like I do her a bit of a disservice. But on the other hand, as my dad said, once when I was asked on to this morning to talk about this and obviously I normally do their royal coverage so it was a bit like it was a bit left field and I phoned dad and the boys and said are you happy with me doing this and subsequently actually my brothers took part in a BBC documentary that I made called The Monster Downstairs which is about children of alcoholics and you can still get it I think on iPlayer but um, my dad said to me Camilla if your mum had died of cancer you'd be quite happily talking about it and trying to help other people going through the same so what's the difference? which I thought was pretty magnanimous from him. So I'll continue talking to people about it because I hope it will help. You've been so much help today, Camilla. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and being so generous with your story. And honestly, you're so articulate and beautiful about it. Beautiful seems like the wrong word to use when describing someone's death from alcoholism. But the love you so clearly have for Lynn, your mum Lynn, is, is huge and... She sounds like she was she was a fabulous woman, and it's just it, that's the tragedy of alcoholism, isn't it? Is that it diminishes us yes, to nothing? Exactly. And look, I suppose I like to keep her memory alive by reminding people that yes, she was an alcoholic, but she was also this remarkable person who had such a extraordinarily positive influence on my life. You know, it's not all bad, and that's the other word of hope to finish on. If you're going through this at the moment, you know, you get help. 
get support, speak to people and you'll get through it. Thank you so much, Camilla. All right. Thank you very much. Before you go, please follow Madworld on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I love to read what you think about the shows and see your guest suggestions too. The Telegraph also let me loose in the paper. So if you'd like to hear more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash Madworld and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. This series was produced by the legendary Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And if you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support. Action on Addiction, who along with the Forward Trust have helped us put together this series, are a UK charity providing support to people who need rehab, as well as a wealth of resources for those battling addiction issues. They can be found at www.actiononaddiction.org.uk. For honest information about drugs and help and advice in the UK, head to www.talktofrank.com or call 0300 123 6600. Wearewithyou.org.uk are a charity who offer free confidential support to people in England and Scotland who have issues with drugs and alcohol. For information in Northern Ireland, go to services.drugsandalcoholni.info. In Wales, you can contact Dan247 at dan247.org.uk. If you are a child of an alcoholic, you can get advice and support from NACOA for free on 0800 358 3456. And importantly, please remember this, you are not alone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.